may be seated. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Uh, Father, at this time, we thank you for the time that we have together this morning as we transition from worship and song to the worship and the preaching of your word. I pray that you help myself and also those who are sitting before me. Uh, for me, I pray that you empower me with your spirit, speak through me, uh, and to use what I've prepared this week to bless those who, uh, have, who, have, uh, who have come here today. And for those who have come here today, I pray also that you uh, just open their minds and their hearts to receive your word and that you, by your, the power of your spirit, give them obedience or help them to walk in obedience to it. We thank you and we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, uh, children up to the age of three can go to the back at this time if you want them to go back there. Someone is there with them. And uh, for the rest of us, we are going to be in John chapter 19 this morning. And I want to start off by saying Happy New Year to everyone. Um, I'm excited about 2021, as I think we all are. Uh, from a uh, from a non-biblical perspective, we want to say goodbye to 2020, and uh, we're, we're glad it's gone. But uh, we, we are trained by the Holy Spirit to, uh, to think from a biblical perspective. And we, if we're going to do that, we have to look at 2020 as a year of uh, sanctification, right? There's so much that we learned from 2020, and uh, I think it's a year that the church woke up from its slumber and in many areas of our nation, and we still need to continue to pray for the church. Uh, there are areas, I read an article this morning in Canada uh, where uh, they are being, uh, elders are being fined, the elders of a church are being fined $10,000 each, I believe, and uh, being taken to court because they are meeting together as a church, and there's some other Crazy stuff going on in Canada, not only in Canada, but in other uh, states that we need to continue to be in prayer for the church and uh, for the church to rise and uh, to do its part in sharing the gospel, right? Because that's, that's what we're uh, called to do. Um, there's no king but Christ, amen? So uh, 2020 was a, a great year for sanctification and the Lord's going to continue to sanctify us until he glorifies us. And so there's a lot to look forward to in 2021. Um, one thing to look forward to is we are coming close uh, to, we're coming to an end of the Gospel of John, and after we finish John, which has 21 chapters, we're going to start in the book of Acts. But um, right now, today, we're looking at John 19, verses 1 through 16, and this is a very powerful uh, passage that we're going to read this morning, and I pray that um, you are blessed by the preaching of the word. Uh, John 19, verses 1 through 16. It says, Then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him, and the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. They came up to him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews, and struck him with their hands. Pilate went out again and said to them, So I am bringing him out to you that you may know that I find no guilt in him. So Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. Pilate said to them, Behold the man. When the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, Crucify him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, Take him yourself and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. The Jews answered him, We have a law, and according to that law he ought to die, because he has made himself the Son of God. When Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. He entered his headquarters again and said to Jesus, Where are you from? But Jesus gave no answer. 
So Pilate said to him, you will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to, authority to crucify you? Jesus answered him, you would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. Therefore, he delivered me over. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. Verse 12, from then on, Pilate sought to release him, but the Jews cried out, if you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. So when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judgment seat at a place called the Stone Pavement, and in Aramaic, Gabatha, or Gabatha. Now it was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. He said to the Jews, Behold, your king. They cried out, Away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priest answered, We have no king but Caesar. So he delivered him over to them to be crucified. That is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. All right, so we are continuing the saga of Jesus' trials here. And just to back up just a little bit in John chapter 18, this is where the trials, uh, John 18 is where the trials began. Uh, Jesus appeared before the Jewish court. And uh, if you will remember, he appeared before them. He had two different uh, uh, trials are two proceedings, maybe one one of the same trial, but two different proceedings. Um, and both of them, in both of those cases, he was treated unfairly, and they were trying to get him put through the courts within the Jewish on the Jewish side, so that he can get in front of the Roman court. And this is where we're beginning here in John 19. In fact, at the end of John 18, uh, that's where he goes and he's talking to. Uh, he begins to talk to Pilate, and. Also in John 18, we find out the charges that are that the Sanhedrin that they're bringing against Jesus. Uh, John does not cover that, but it is covered in Luke uh, chapter 23. Remember, there are three things that uh, the Sanhedrin. Uh, there are three accusations that the Sanhedrin, that the uh, excuse me that the Sanhedrin are trying to pin onto Jesus. First of all, they said that in Luke 23 verse 2 that uh, they found that Jesus was misleading their nation. No specifics given as to uh, what it was exactly that he was doing, but that he was misleading their nation. Also, he was forbidding them to uh, pay tribute to Caesar. Now, I told you last week that that was the that was a hook that got the Romans involved, because if you if, if they don't pay tribute to Caesar or if someone is 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 preventing them from paying tribute to Caesar, then that means uh, there's no money going to Caesar. Uh, and, and when you mess with somebody's money, then then people have to get involved. And that's this is where Pilate gets involved because uh, he has to look into the accusations of, of Jesus trying to uh, forbid the Jews to pay tribute to Caesar. And then also they are accusing Jesus of calling himself the Christ and a king. And if you are a student of the Old Testament, the Christ would be the one who would the savior who would be who would come and save the people of Israel. And uh, they're accusing him as that, of that as well. So Pilate hears their accusations against Jesus. And at the end of John 18, he re- arranges a private meeting with Jesus. And the, uh, the, the whole reason for the private meeting is so that he can interrogate Jesus and, and get down to the bottom of it to see if he's going to uh, give, guilt, uh, give Jesus the guilty charge for everything that the Jews are 
that, that are, they, they are trying to pin on him. And after this initial interrogation, Pilate finds no fault against Jesus. And he goes out and he presents the findings to, uh, to the Sanhedrin who are present there. And when the Jews hear the findings that, I, that Pilate has no fault in him, well, they have a big problem with that. Right? So then they begin to push back against Pilate, and they want Jesus to be convicted by the Roman court. And this is where we end, that, that's where chapter 18 ends, and then here we begin in chapter 19. Now, in our text today, we are going to see Pontius Pilate, he's going to be front and center, and we're going to see him um, go through a lot of different things. And he's going to do some things that are very questionable, and I hope that I can answer um, why he does what he does today. And the whole, I hope I can bring some clarity as to why Jesus was crucified uh, we know in general or, or for the spiritual reason of why he was crucified, but how he got from A, you know, to Z in being crucified. I hope I can explain that for you uh, from my study. But it, it, with Pontius Pilate, we could, we'll see that he tries to do several different things to free Jesus. He's actually on Jesus' side, but he's in a very, very hard spot. He's stuck between a rock and a hard place. Uh, the rock... And uh, we're not speaking about Jesus here being the rock, but uh, the rock is, is, is the hard place. Uh, one of the, excuse me, the rock is the Sanhedrin uh, that's out for Jesus's blood. So Pilate is stuck between that rock and then the hard place is the emperor Tiberius who was ready to discipline Pilate for any further mistakes that he made. So Pilate had to please the Sanhedrin, but at the same time he had to keep himself out of trouble with the emperor. And We'll see that's what led to uh, the way he uh, judged things and, and to some of his reactions. Because of that, Jesus would eventually be given over to the Romans, uh, to, or to the Jews to be crucified. And our focus today is going to be how God the Father was able to use uh, two things, the sufferings and also the crucifixion of God the Son for the good of his people. That's what we see in our text, and that's, it's, it's amazing whenever uh, we're able to determine that and how that applies to our own lives. Because we have to understand what Jesus went through. Everything he went through had a purpose. Uh, even what we're reading today, his suffering. We know that the crucifixion had a purpose, but his suffering and his crucifixion uh, had a purpose. And it was all effective for what God was going to do with it. Amen? So let's, uh, let's take a look at our text a little bit closer and, and hopefully gain a better understanding. Uh, the one thing that we must understand, and this, this goes back all the way to the beginning of the Gospel of John, uh, when uh, John the Baptist saw Jesus, he said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. We must understand that that was his purpose, right? The incarnation was, was uh, God taking on human flesh uh, to die for our sins, and so the whole purpose of his earthly ministry was, was to die for our sins. So here in John chapter 19, once he is, uh, once he is taken and he is being punished uh, and crucified, he's ultimately fulfilling his purpose uh, of his earthly ministry. And in order to understand the practical reasons for why Jesus was crucified, we must first understand what led Pilate to do what he did. I, you look at scripture and the question that comes up to my mind is what was Pilate's problem, right? Like you just, what exactly was, was his problem? Because when we read about Pontius Pilate in the pages of the gospel, 
he seems to be very uh, indecisive. Uh, he's, uh, he looks like a feeble person, just, just weak. He looks very weak, especially for a Roman governor. But there's more to the story uh, concerning his peculiar behavior. Uh, first of all, we have to start with the historian Titus Josephus. Now, Titus Josephus was a first century uh, historian, and he was a Romano-Jewish historian who wrote about Pontius Pilate a lot. And a lot of, of what we know about Pontius Pilate outside of the Gospels comes from uh, Josephus. And Josephus documents a different side of Pilate that the Gospels really don't capture, and it explains a lot as to why Pilate did, did what he did in, in the text of our scripture, or in the pages of our scripture. See, by the time Jesus appeared before Pontius Pilate, Pilate had already been in trouble, and he had been in trouble with the Jews for several different things. And uh, number one, we know from jo- Josephus, his documenting history and what was going on with Pontius Pilate and the Jews, uh, we know that Pilate was uh, first, uh, that he first offended the Jews by bringing in Roman standards into Jerusalem. Now, what a Roman standard was, was basically a flag or a banner. And on these Roman standards were uh, images of the emperor. And he brought these into Jerusalem, and he offended a bunch of Jews when he did that. No, no other uh, governor had ever done that before. Okay. Also, Pilate first, uh, second, he uh, ran into some conflict after he took funds from the sacred treasury of the temple to build aqueducts. An aqueduct was a way to bring water in for many different reasons. And he basically stole money from the sacred treasury to do that. And of course, that was uh, not only was it sinful for him to, to steal the, uh, the money of the temple, but it was also very offensive to the Jews that he did that. And then Pilate also, in an attempt to honor the emperor Tiberius, placed shields bearing the emperor's name in Herod's uh, castle or his, his palace in Jerusalem. And that also brought offense to the Jews. Now, I, I may be you know, mentioning these things and you're like, OK, but what's the big deal? Why? You know, why was that such a big deal and why did he get in trouble for that? Well, in each of these instances, there was acts of rebellions from the Jews. So every time he did something that was offensive to their culture, to their faith, um, they reacted with rebellion. And there was, you know, mobs, there was uh, fighting, looting in the streets. And every time Pilate responded with the use of force. And many times, many times he responded with excessive force. So here, this paints a different picture than Pilate in, 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 the, in Scripture, where Pilate's just kind of, you see that he's afraid, he's indecisive, he doesn't know what to do. He keeps on going back and forth with Jesus. Uh, the Jews are basically telling him what to do. Instead of ruling over them, he's, he's kind of listening to them. Uh, instead of ruling over them, yeah, he's listening to them. And so this paints a, a different picture of Pilate. And many Jews, when Jesus, or when, excuse me, when Pilate responded with the use of excessive force, many Jews were beaten and many were killed at the command of Pontius Pilate. So now we bring the time of Jesus and these trials. He comes in, he arrives for his trial, and Pontius Pilate was basically on his last warning. He was out of chances. He was out of chances with the, uh, the emperor Tiberius. And he was trying to get through this trial without getting in trouble because he knew his chances were over. 
He had already offended the Jews plenty of times. He had already gotten in trouble with the emperor. And now he needed to get through this trial uh, unscathed to be able to keep his position. In fact, after this, he ended up doing something else where he was pulled from his position of governor and done away with. But that kind of explains why Pilate is, is, is acting the way he is in scripture here. And we see that even though Pilate knew that Jesus was innocent, he's facing pressure from the Sanhedrin, and uh, that pressure drove him to uh, ultimately crucify Christ. When Pilate symbolically, this is what's really funny about it, is because, you know, we all are aware of, of Pilate symbolically washing his hands before he's, he orders Jesus to be crucified. And when he washes, you know, he's sitting there and, and, and he's washing his hands, when he's washing his hands, that's symbolic of, of, of him not being innocent of putting an innocent man to death. Because he, he couldn't wash his hands of that. He actually put an innocent man to death, and he, he knew he was innocent. There's enough evidence in, in our passage, just in our passage alone, from verses uh, John chapter 19, verses 1 through 16, where we see that, that he, he's trying to free Jesus. He's trying everything he can to free him. But ultimately, he has to hand him over. So when he's symbolically washing his hands, he's not saying, hey, I'm innocent of, of, of uh, putting this innocent man to death. Rather, he is trying to show the emperor Tiberius that, he was, that it basically wasn't his fault why he had to put an innocent man to death. So he sits there and he washes his hands and he, he's washing his guilt of it. He's like, look, I don't agree with this. This man is innocent. I've already told you plenty of times. I'm going to wash my hands to show this is not my fault. I'm not going to get blamed for this one. It's going to be on y'all. So that's why he sits there and he washes his hand before handing Jesus over. Now, and, and as I said, in our text, Pilate tried several different things to free Jesus, but it all backfired. Look at verses one through six. It says that, Pilate took Jesus and flogged him, and the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. They came up to him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews, and they struck him with their hands. Pilate went out again and said to them, See, I am bringing him out to you, that you may know that I find no guilt in him. Right? So Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. Listen to this. And then Pilate said to them, Behold, the man. That last sentence, that last statement from Pilate seems odd, but it, it's, it's not odd. It, it really makes sense of what he was trying to do here. It seemed that Pilate thought that the scourging and the mocking of Jesus would have appeased the Sanhedrin's thirst for blood. And I, I'm, I'm convinced that's the reason why he did what he did. That's why he, he, even though he thought Jesus was innocent, he pulled him in to be flogged and then to be mocked, well, the mocking might have just taken place because you're dealing with sinful men, lost and sinful men. And, and so he, he gave him over to be flogged to appease the, uh, the Sanhedrin. And, and hopefully after he did that, they would say, OK, you know what? He suffered enough for what he's done. Now, when we talk about the word uh, that they use for flogged here, it could be either whipped, flogged or scourged. Uh, these were the three different type of beatings that you would get from the Romans, depending on what you did. Now, to be scourged was the worst one, and that's the one that uh, historians 
and theologians think that Jesus was, he was scourged because a scourging preceded a capital punishment. So a scourging was, was the worst beating of all, um, that it was the worst beating that a prisoner could receive. Because number one, the weapon that was used had pieces of either glass or metal at the end of it. All right. And I think we all understand that. But also a person who was uh, who was scourged would be tied to a post. So Jesus would, would be tied to it, would have been tied to a post and he would have been given 13 strokes on the chest and 26 strokes on the back. And somewhere along the way in between Deuteronomy and, and, and where we're talking about now, they took one stroke off. Right. Because one one more stroke was too excessive. So 13 in the front and 26 in the back. I'm not sure where they deducted that stroke, but uh, you get the picture. You have a weapon, basically, at the end of it that has glass and it has metal, and you are being whipped with that. The intent of the weapon was to rip open the flesh. So there's, there's documented history of people being uh, scourged where, not to get too gross about anything, but like intestines are coming out. That's, that's what it would do. It would rip you open from the front and also from the back. Uh, it would, it would, you would be able to see bone, tendons, and muscle after they were done with you. In fact, many did not make it through the beatings. Many, that was their, that was their death sentence. So this is what uh, was done to Christ before he was crucified. And then we have the crown of thorns. The crown of thorns were about three inches in length, and these crown of thorns would have been pressed into his, his skin and, and, and smashed against his skull. They, it would have, that, that was a whole point. It wasn't only to mock him, but also to punish him as well. His face would have looked deformed from the beatings he received from the guards. He would have been unrecognizable. Okay? So when we read in verses 1 through 6, and we see that they bring him out, they bring him out, and it's ironic that Pontius Pilate says, hey, I have no guilt in him. Now Pontius Pilate doesn't seem so nice, right? He doesn't seem so innocent and so feeble, so weak. After we get an understanding of what he actually did to Jesus, just to prove a point, just to say, okay, I think he suffered enough now. Now he can be let go. What he did was completely cruel. So he presents Jesus, and he says, here, look, I find no guilt in him. And then verse 6, it says, Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe, and Pilate said to him, or said to them, the Sanhedrin, he said, behold the man. Now, basically what he was doing was saying, look, look what I've done to him. That's enough, isn't it? That's enough for what you're trying to charge him with. He's basically, he's beaten Worse than anyone can be beaten, but, or as bad as anyone can be beaten, but he's still alive. This should be enough. Even the Bible paints a grim picture of Jesus' uh, complexion and, and what he looked like at that time. Uh, listen to Isaiah 53, verse 3, and how this prophecy depicted the Savior who would be, uh, who would be persecuted and also uh, whipped and, and, and uh, distortured. Uh, for us. Isaiah 53.3, it says, He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Uh, that's, that's a very 
very strong passage, a very strong description of what Jesus looked like. It was, he, he looked so horrible that you, you could not look upon him. Uh, he, he, his, his body was so torn up that you couldn't help but turn away. That's what he looked like whenever Pontius Pilate brought him out. And he said, behold the man. If I sit here and I think about that, it it just, it gets me every time. It, It truly does. I think we have this picture of the cross and for some reason, and, and I'll speak for myself first and foremost, for some reason we forget the details of the cross. We forget the sufferings of Christ. We want to fast forward to the resurrection. Because that's the good part for us. But we can never forget the sufferings of Christ. We can never forget the details of what happened to him. Because we're the reason why it happened to him. We must understand that we played a part in what happened to him. Though we were not present there, he died for our sins. And everything he went through, as I said in the beginning of this sermon, had a purpose. And God effectively worked out that purpose. See, Pilate presents Jesus. He says, behold the man. Basically saying, look, I've punished him enough. Now let me let him go. But instead, it says in verse 6, when the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, crucify him, crucify him. And then verses 6 through 8, Pilate said to them, take him yourself and crucify him. See, again, he's trying to deflect. I don't want to crucify him. I've already punished him enough. Now you take him and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. And the Jews answered him, we have a law, and according to that law, he ought to die because he has made himself the son of God. And when Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. Now, he's not afraid of the Jews. Remember, he's afraid of what might happen to him. He's sitting there and he's like, what am I going to do? These people are not letting up at all. So the passage tells us, or or in John chapter 19, it tells us that after that, Pilate goes back to speak with Jesus. And this is a private conversation again. And, And here, John reveals in his gospel that Pilate was adamant that Jesus was innocent. And even after speaking to Jesus privately, Pilate is adamant that he will free Jesus. Listen to this. It says, from then on, Pilate sought to release him. This is after his conversation with Jesus. But the Jews cried out, if you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. So then Pilate heard these words, or when he heard these words, he brought out Jesus and sat down on the judgment seat at the place called the stone pavement. So his intentions were to free Jesus. He had it in mind. I am going to set him free. He continues to try to do that. But then they begin to cry out and they begin to remind him of the trouble that he's in. If you are not on our side, 
then you are not Caesar's friend. Remember what you've done to us. Remember the trouble that you're in. If you don't appease us, you're going to get it. And for him, that was enough. He brought out Jesus and he sat down to judge him. And he said to the Jews, behold, your king. And they cried out, away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, shall I crucify your king? And the chief priests answered, we have no king but Caesar. And then Pilate delivered him over to them to be crucified. And so they took Jesus. And that's how our text ended. You see, what happened to Jesus, we must understand was supposed to happen to him. The Bible is very clear that it was the will of God to crush him. Now, that sounds very odd. It was the will of God to crush Christ. See, Pilate was incapable of doing anything else on his own to change that. That's one thing we have to recognize. Pilate was not going to change that. It was going to happen because a sovereign God wanted it to happen. It needed to happen. But on the other hand, we must also understand that it was the will of God to crush him in that Pilate was not innocent of his actions either. So on one end, Pilate was incapable of doing anything to stop it, to change what was going to happen because it was the will of God. But on the other hand, Pilate was not innocent of his actions or he was guilty of what he did, the part he played. He wholeheartedly put an innocent man to death to appease the masses and also to keep himself out of trouble. Pilate did that. And we also have to say that God could have saved his son at any time, but then we have to go back to the fact that it was the father's will to crush the son. Even Jesus reveals this to us in his last conversation to Pilate, with Pilate. Look at verses 10 and 11. This is when Pilate goes back to have his last private meeting. And it, the passage says, So Pilate said to him, You will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? Jesus answered him, You have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. Jesus makes it known that this was bigger than Pilate. Pilate wasn't the one with the authority in that room. It was Christ. He had already given himself over to be crucified. Remember, that was the covenant that him and the Father made before the beginning of time that he would be given over to be crucified for the sins of God's elect. So what happened to Jesus was the result of a great injustice. We have to admit that. It was a, a great injustice at the hands of sinful man. But we also have to see that God used that great injustice to bless his people, to bless the elect. Without Jesus dying, we have to understand that we would not be forgiven of our sin. 
And that's the great lesson that we come to today. How these two things work together. How our, our, our actions, our decisions, and God's will work together. It's, it's an amazing thing, and, and I can tell you, you're not going to walk out of here saying, wow, I completely understand that. Pastor did a good job explaining that because I don't completely understand it myself. That's one of those things that, are, that, is, that is shaded for, you know, from us here, that is hidden, com- hidden from us here where we won't completely understand how these two things work together, but we know they do. Because number one, scripture tells us they do. And number two, we have seen it and experienced it in our own lives. Even the prophet Isaiah spoke of the crucifixion. And listen to this. He spoke of this 700 years beforehand. And in this prophecy about the Savior, he speaks of of man's choices and God's will and how they work together. Listen to this, Isaiah 53 again, verses 10 through 11. He says, yet it was the will of God to crush him. Right, that's, that's God's will. Nothing was going to change that. It was the will of God to crush him. Speaking of the Christ. He was put to grief. When his soul, when his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring He shall prolong his days and the will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Now listen to this. Out of the anguish of his soul, we are he shall see and be satisfied by his knowledge. Shall the the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous and he shall bear their iniquities. We have the reason as to why. Christ was suffering and why Christ would be crucified. This is 700 years beforehand. Isaiah speaking a prophecy that came true exactly the way he said it. It's a lot different than prophets today, right? So-called prophets today. I mean, to me, it just it's amazing to me when I read Isaiah 53 and I gain of understanding of, of, of him talking about Christ, him speaking about how he would die at the hands of sinful men, but at the same time, it was the will of God to crush him. When we look at that, there's, there's a couple of classic passages in the Bible that help us to understand this mystery. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. That's a text that we all know. Right, because we need that text from Romans eight twenty eight. We we completely need that. We need to know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. Amen. We we have to know that because there are so many things that happen to us that we cannot explain. We 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 just can't. We have a hard time dealing with, and we don't know why it happened. But we just know that that God is is working things out for us. Faith tells us that. Not only does scripture tell us that, but, but faith tells us that inwardly. I guarantee if, if you had never read the Bible before, or if you read it one time to be saved, actually, and you had never read Romans 8.28, you would know in your heart because the Holy Spirit would tell you that God works everything for your good. 
for your ultimate good. So that is a text, a classic text that we all know. But when we look at the sufferings of Christ and we understand that it happened at the hands of sinful man, but at the same time that it was the will of God to crush him, then we gain an appreciation of of one of God's greatest blessings. And it's this, that he uses all things for his glory and for the good of his people. That is what we come to understand when we look at the sufferings of the cross. God uses all things, all things for his glory and the good of his people. He is a great and wonderful God. I thought of this question as I was studying this passage. I thought, who makes a completely sovereign king suffer? I mean, because remember last week we talked about Jesus being the king of kings and how when Pilate was was interrogating him in chapter 18, Pilate thought he was the man. He thought he was in charge and Christ You know, he could have crushed him at any time. Christ said, I am a king, but my my kingdom is not like your kingdom. Your kingdom is itty bitty. Mine is of all creation. I, I am over all things. All things were created because of me. All things were created for me. Pilate hadn't created anything. The emperor, Tiberius, hadn't, he hadn't created anything. So we, we get this, this picture of, the, of the, the two kingdoms and who was really in charge. And from that, we gather that there is no king but Christ. There is no king but God. And there is no one bigger than God. And there is no thing stronger than God. Nothing that we will ever face will be able to dethrone our God. Listen to this. Even our own sin cannot do that. That's why. That's why when he saves you, You are his forever because no one can take you out of his hand. That is a promise that we learn from the Bible. So who can complete who who can make a completely sovereign king suffer if we serve a king like that? Well, the answer is really complex. It's not completely simple, but here's an answer for you. Sinful men make a sovereign king suffer, but only if the king allows them to do so, or else he wouldn't be sovereign. Isn't that what we see in our passage? I've said it over and over and over again. Jesus is suffering injustice at the hands of sinful men, but he's a king of kings. He rules over all things. All things were created for him. How can he be suffering? Because he has humbled himself. He has taken on flesh. And his purpose was to die for our sins. And that's why Jesus can say, 
If you want to be a leader, you must be a servant first. You must follow me. Because he took on human flesh to die for us and to die even on the cross. So when we see this picture of a a sovereign king who is suffering, we must understand that there are two activities that that were working here in the crucifixion. There's the acts of sinful men, and then there's the acts of a gracious king. And the lesson here is that we intentionally make our choices in life. Just like the Sanhedrin here, they're they're bringing these false accusations against Jesus. They were 100% responsible for their choices. For Pilate, for Pilate not standing up for an innocent man, he was 100% responsible for his choices. And God could have stopped it at any time he wanted to. Jesus showed us that in the Gospels. When they came looking for him, they said, where is Jesus? I am here. Boom, they all fell. So that we can see his power. It could have been stopped at any time, but it was the will of God the Father to crush God the Son. So how he was treated and what was done to him by the hands of sinful man was extremely evil. In fact, when we look at it, it was the greatest injustice that the world has ever seen or will ever see. But God, in his infinite wisdom and power, he used the crucifixion of Christ and the sufferings of Christ. He used all of it to save his people from their sins. See, there is a, in theology, there is a, a doctrine that explains this, and it is the doctrine of divine concurrence. It sounds really fancy, but it makes a lot of sense. The doctrine of divine concurrence. And what divine concurrence is, is when human activity and divine activity, when they meet to create a single event. It's an important doctrine because this is the doctrine that explains how God is not sinful. We say he's sovereign. God doesn't make people sin. If God made people sin, then he would have sinned, right? He would be sinful. God is completely holy. We're sinful. We're not robots. We make our choices. And we follow our flesh. And that's why we will be judged by our choices according to what we've done in the body, right? That's what the Bible says. See, the doctrine of divine concurrence uh, explains how these two things work together, the activity, the human activity, and also divine activity. When we look at a biblical example, there's no better story than the story of Joseph. It's a great biblical example, other than the the story of Christ, that is. See, Joseph was sold into slavery by his brothers. You know, we're all aware of that story. We learn it as kids. But we learn that God blessed Joseph all the way up to he was basically second in charge of all of Egypt. And he ended up saving the nation of Israel from a famine. And at the very end, when his brothers come 
and they speak to Joseph when they come and speak to him. And Joseph mourns at, 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 at the side of his brothers, at the side of his fathers. This is what Joseph says. You meant evil against me. Basically what he's saying is you sold me into slavery. You hated me. I did nothing to you. You meant evil against me. What you did was horrible. It was completely your choice. You meant to do it, but God meant it for good. When we look at the crucifixion, it's the same thing. The Sanhedrin, Pilate, everyone who is involved, including us, we meant evil against him. But God meant it for good. See, the choices you have made, the choices I have made up to this point, and the choices I will make tomorrow and that you will make tomorrow, they're completely our responsibility. But here's the great hope that we have. When we look at the cross, when we see Jesus suffering, this is the great hope that we have. Despite our choices and our sinful nature, at the same time, God is working out our choices for his glory and our ultimate good. Don't we serve a great God? We, we don't deserve that. We honestly don't deserve that. And, and don't for one second use that to validate your sin. Don't do that. I hope I'm speaking to people who are more spiritually mature than that. To say, oh, well, God works everything out for, for his glory and my good. Well, man, I can do anything. That's idiotic. We don't do that. That's why Paul says, certainly not. We must understand the grace that is available to us. Every choice we've ever made, every choice we've ever made, God, he has worked it for his glory and he has worked it for our ultimate good. We don't deserve him. And we don't think about that enough. But just that fact alone should help us to serve him more, to praise him more. It's amazing how God makes wonderful things out of things that are maybe not so beautiful. My mother's, one of my, my mother's favorite flower was the rose. I'll never forget that. In fact, I'm running behind at the house right now. One of my goals was to plant a nice rose bush in memory of her. And she loved yellow roses. I've always thought the roses were, that roses were very intriguing. Um, whenever we built our house in Inez, I had to clear a bunch of trees. On, that, on the trees were rose hedges. And it was, if I never have to clear a tree with rose hedge anymore, I, I, I'm, I will be happy. 
I mean, I still have scars on my arms from them. Very ugly, ugly vine. We call them a weed. But I've always been intrigued by those big, beautiful roses. Because I understand that God makes roses to grow from thorn bushes. I start thinking about that and I say, you know what? God does the same thing in our lives. Our choices are like the thorns on the thorn bushes. They hurt people. They're an ugly sight. No one would appreciate a, a, a thorn bush by itself. The only reason why we grow the thorn bush is so that we can have the rose. That's what God does for us. He brings about the most precious things in our lives from the darkest moments of our lives. He did it on the cross. He does it every single day of our lives. See, there is no better proof of that than the cross. I think about the cross, too. The cross is supposed to be a symbol of of, of, of humiliation and shame. It was supposed to be a place where a criminal died. We all wear crosses today. In fact, we have one that's covered up right now, but that's, that's the symbol of the church, so to speak. But back in Jesus' day, when he walked the earth, that was a criminal's death. No one would wear a cross. And it's amazing that the cross that was supposed to be this symbol of humiliation and shame, that God used that and he worked it out to be a symbol of love and grace. When I think about that, I think about how I do not trust God enough in my life. There's one thing that we always say. We know that we're not perfect, right? Christians sin. Sometimes people accuse us of being hypocrites because for some reason they think that, that we think we're not sinners. But the true fact is that we know we're sinners. We're just saved by grace. And when I make dumb choices, when I sin against the Lord... His grace just overwhelms me. It overwhelms me to know that God is taking what I have decided to do, good, bad, or ugly. He's taking that, and he's using it for his glory, and he's using it for my ultimate good. I think that's just completely amazing, and there's no better example of that than than the crucifixion of Christ and his sufferings for us. I think our last response just needs to be, we need to trust him more. We need to trust him more and we, we need to walk in confidence and in hope that he who began a good work in us will carry it to completion to the day of Christ Jesus. Let's pray. We prepare for our prayer. Our... Uh, 
praise and worship team is going to play a song, and this is going to give you uh, a time for private prayer. If you want to come up and be prayed for, then the altar is open for that.